Welcome to the Open Door Church's podcast for this week. Today is uh, February 8th, and today's podcast is the sermon from this past Sunday, just yesterday. Uh, We had a guest preacher, uh, Paul Seif. Paul is uh, an Open Door um, covenant partner, and he also works at East Liberty Presbyterian Church, working in Christian Ed there. he works, uh, you'll hear him talk about this, but he works in the restaurant industry. So his life has been thrown upside down by um, the COVID-19 pandemic, as many of our lives have. Um, he's going to take us uh, back into the book of Mark and the er- some of the earliest uh, days of Jesus's ministry. And we will hear more about the rhythms and practices of the disciples and Jesus in these early days of Jesus's life in ministry. So here we go with the scripture. I will be reading that. Mark chapter 1 verses 29 through 39 is our scripture for today. Let's hear God's word for us. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Amen. God of all light and truth, you are beyond our grasp and our conceiving with reverence and adoring love. We proclaim your glory and we sing your praise. For you have shown us your truth and love in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. And now, of course, may the words of my mouth and the meditations on all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our surest foundation. Our reading today picks up right in the opening days of our Lord Jesus's public mission. In the moments before this scene, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist and filled with the Holy Spirit and drawn into the wilderness to be tempted and to overcome temptation 
to then be waited on by angels and to commune with God who he calls Father in prayer. He's also already begun to gather disciples, including Simon, who would be Peter, his brother Andrew, and James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. These gathered have already become witnesses as Jesus speaks with authority, preaching and having just preached his first sermon of many in the synagogue. Our story picks up in the moments right after Jesus preaches with authority in the synagogue. He concludes proclaiming, at least for the moment, that the present kingdom has come, but now Jesus is in need of some rest. Jesus and his new friends are heading to Simon and Andrew's family home. We can assume from the fact that Simon's house is the first destination post Jesus' authoritative sermon at the synagogue, that this cohort is heading to Simon's house for some much needed respite and hopefully a meal. They arrive at Simon's to find Simon's mother-in-law lying on the floor, perhaps asleep, perhaps in an illness-induced coma, since the meaning of the original Greek verb prescribed this healing is to rouse from a deep sleep or unconsciousness. She's perhaps near death from an unnamed ailment. Jesus lifts her up by hand and she's immediately healed. Jesus has lifted up her lifeless and she's suddenly awake, then fully healed without hesitation, she begins to serve her son-in-law, his brother, and their new friends, her healer, our savior Jesus, certainly among them. And full candor, I, I fail at any attempt to wrap my mind around the outcome of this healing. And I'm not alone. Scholars for centuries have been scandalized by the fact that this, Jesus' first recorded healing in the gospel according to Mark, which for many is presumed to be the oldest gospel, that this healing doesn't explicitly challenge the societal expectation of the domesticity of women. There's sure patriarchy here in a vision of a woman being healed immediately, getting up and serving. So why doesn't Simon's unnamed mother-in-law and her healing allow her to take on some other role rather than simply serving the disciples? When Lazarus is healed in John 11, similarly raised and roused, Lazarus doesn't serve, he reclines. His sister Martha serves. I wish here that Simon would have jumped at the chance to offer the olives and matzo to the house guests whom he invited and let his mother-in-law recline as Lazarus did. Yet I'm mindful that for the gospel according to Mark, there is a very specific honor held for the women who serve the Jesus mission. Though they're not named as disciples, they're absolutely there. Specifically, Mark's gospel goes out of its way to enter into the story with the perspectives of some of these women. And this culminates in, in Mark 15, where these unnamed women who serve Jesus' mission remain at Jesus' cross at Calvary, even after the other disciples have left. I, I like to believe that Simon's unnamed mother-in-law is right there 
among them, with them. Perhaps continuing a ministry of service, of community that begins right here in our story. The point of the Mark and Ryder story here, I think, is that Simon's mother-in-law did serve. She jumps up and ministers to Jesus and Jesus' disciples. And that she could serve because she was immediately and miraculously healed. And her response to that liberation contained in Jesus' touch is to immediately serve. But let's also remember that she is healed by her savior at a time when he was likely already exhausted. He's just come from hours of preaching in the synagogue. He's also liberated a man from the oppression of a demon between the synagogue and here. Both Jesus and Simon's mother-in-law had earned well-deserved and much-needed rest. But instead of reclining, they both rise to the occasion and they serve. New Testament scholar Matt Skinner wants us to remember that the root of the Greek word assigned to Simon's mother-in-law's work, translated here as service, is the same verb used throughout the Gospels for Jesus' own ministry. The writers of the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke all similarly include this healing narrative and use the same verb. And because that verb is also used for Jesus' ministry, there's a very clear connection that we can recognize Simon's unnamed mother-in-law is not simply serving, but ministering. That's important. Our text tells us that within matters, within a matter of hours of Simon Mother's healing, the subsequent service that followed that healing, the whole town is gathered outside Simon's door. That's town, the townspeople are all bringing those in need of healing to Jesus, and Jesus is healing them, ministering to them. Then something curious occurs. In the middle of releasing those affected by demons from the clutches of their oppressors, Jesus commands the demons not to tell the people who he is. Because as the marker, Mark and writer attests, he knew them. I'm sorry, they knew him. Now, demons testifying to Jesus' divinity, this is a recurring motif in the Gospels and in Acts. Similarly, Jesus telling others, demons included, not to speak of his divinity, is a feature specific to the Gospel of Mark called the Markan secret. And trust, there's a world of scholarship on this matter. I'm not going to spend time on it. Um, you're a mouse click away from, from having some great scholarship talking about the Markan secret, also called, called the Messianic secret. I will say, however, that in this particular moment, Jesus' instruction to the expelled demons in our story not to speak, for they knew him, seems entirely rational to me on two fronts. First, Jesus didn't come that the demons should know him. They knew him already. Jesus came that we should know him that those who he's ministering to should know him. And second, the people who are coming to know Jesus in this moment outside Simon's door are doing so through his ministry and service of them. The multitude that's there gathered is coming to knowledge of Jesus as he serves them and their loved ones who are ailing and afflicted.
Lastly, our, our story concludes with Jesus retreating back to the wilderness, back to prayer. He rises early. The multitude, or at least a remnant of that multitude, still gathered at Simon Peter's door. And Jesus slips past them, presumably undetected, to commune with God, whom he calls Father, and to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit, revived and recharged from a day of proclaiming, then administering kingdom. His friends find him. Simon reports that the whole town's been searching for him. I suspect this town formerly scandalized by the possibility of a healer that could liberate them, their loved ones, their neighbors, is now radicalized by the knowing that Jesus did liberate them and their loved ones from their, from their ills and release them from the captivities of the evils that enslaved them. Jesus simply states to his friends, let's go do it again. Let's go to the other neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message of the kingdom in the synagogues there also. So they went throughout Galilee, proclaiming that message and continuing to cast out demons. Now, as some of you know, I work part-time for the church and I also work full-time in the hospitality industry, mostly as a bartender and a restaurant manager. And I'm also a DJ. People in the church where I serve find it really curious that I work in bars and spin records and clubs. Similarly, people who sit at my bar and come to hear me spin records are often astounded to find out one, that I'm a Christian, and two, that I work for the church. The Saturday night people, as I like to call them, these are those that come and sit, sit at my bar and come and hear me spin records. They routinely ask me something akin to how can you be with those type of people? Referring, of course, to the Sunday morning people who the Sunday morning people similarly ask me basically the same question. Even more curious to me um, is the fact that both of the people on both sides of the story often don't know that they already know one another, that they're actually neighbors. They have different schedules, different rhythms, sometimes different priorities, but I mostly see their similarities rather than their differences. In fact, if the Sunday morning people and the Saturday night people crossed paths, both probably wearing penguins caps, both probably on their way to the cafe, walking their dogs, they both already paid for their cappuccino on their phone. They're probably watching TikTok videos, waiting in line socially distanced for their coffee. They're gonna thank the barista, tip 20%. If they actually talk to one another, they'd be similarly kind or similarly distracted or weary or nervous. Despite our different rhythms, we often have similar practices. The churched, the unchurched, the formerly churched. We are all perhaps more alike than we ultimately know. It is entirely important for me, I think, to keep in mind here in this story that this story revolves around Simon's mother-in-law who is healed and then immediately ministers to her community. And she was not one of the people in the synagogue. Point of fact, she's seemingly the one whom God willed to use to minister to a tired Jesus after he preached in the synagogue. This is the gospel I need to hear. Church, Jesus is being ministered to here 
by someone who is not a church attender. She's not even a disciple yet. She's Simon's mother-in-law. Simon and Andrew and James and John are heading to Simon's house, not because of the acclaimed godlikeness of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, but presumably instead because Simon and Peter sung the praises of her hospitality and her great food, and they're just all looking for a meal. Similarly, the market writer gives us indication that the multitude now waiting at Simon's door were also not the people in the synagogue. Rather, we're told they're the people of Simon's community, his town, his neighborhood. Like Simon's mother-in-law, likely they didn't attend church that day. They encountered Jesus in the town square hours after service had concluded. And like the people of our neighborhoods that we encounter, from the moments after church concludes until the moments churches, church begins the following Sunday, the people who gathered around Simon's door do, do so presumably because they themselves or someone they love needed healing, deliverance, liberation. They need to be served, loved, cared for, ministered to, just like us, just like everyone we know, churched, formerly churched, never churched, but our neighbors who we encounter between Sunday and Sunday can also be the God-ordained ministers of our healing, of our service, of our rest, of our respite. Just like Simon's mother-in-law ministered to the followers of Christ and Christ himself. Furthermore, if the point of this story, at least in part, is to be healed and then to serve just like Simon's mother-in-law did, then perhaps it's right similarly to apply that same transmission of Jesus' touch, healing, liberation, leading to service to that multitude gathered at Simon's door. What fascinating ways might we imagine some among this multitude expressed care for those in their community upon returning from this encounter with Jesus? Synagogue or no, God found God's children precisely where he always knew they'd be, set them free by real touch with Christ, and at least one immediately served, ministered. Please understand, church, I believe that church attendance is important. The church is my mother and I love her. Jesus expresses healing and liberation through physical touch, through actual intimacy with Christ. Similarly, the body of Christ, the church, liberated through intimacy with Christ, chooses a life for God in Christ. This is all expressed in our story. But the synagogue is still the place where we can expect to find Jesus. And I believe it's still a desire to be touched by Jesus and to be made whole by Christ, as Simon, Simon's mother-in-law was, that still draws us together to be with and to be body collected as the local church. In our text, Simon's mother-in-law is healed, made whole by the tender touch of Jesus. Like, like her, we need to be near Jesus to be healed. Humans need intimacy, we need each other. We need to be near each other to help one another to wholeness. In this intimacy with Jesus and with each other, we are raised up as she was, 
to our highest calling individually and collectively to serve. Jesus expresses healing and liberation through physical touch, through actual intimacy with Christ. Similarly, the body of Christ, the church, liberated through intimacy with Christ, chooses a life for and in Christ. Then, once again, the Holy Spirit nurtures us, cares for us, and through that, we can find a way as community to live service for Christ by, with, by being with each other and with one another for our neighborhoods. But sometimes it's the ones we least expect who are the source by which God's sustaining support and healing service ultimately arrives. Every moment of every day in myriad ways, all over the world and throughout my neighborhood, Christ is touching, healing God's children, the formerly synagogued, presently synagogued, and never synagogued alike. It's some of these that God is actually establishing community with and extending community through will immediately respond to Jesus' touch by serving their neighbors, just as Simon's mother-in-law did. In our story, we are witnessing a child of God becoming a follower of Christ and subse subsequently participating in the body of Christ. Though she recites no creed, she utters no confession, there's no comment or mention of the condition of her faith. Christ simply snatches Simon's mother-in-law from the clutches of death and she begins to minister to Jesus, her savior, her healer, and his friends, his disciples. The disciples are being church here, following Jesus here by simply receiving the gift of service. Up to now, we haven't really talked about what the disciples have been doing in this story, but they've been here all along, participating in our tale as saints, bearing witness to Jesus' restorative work in the world. As Jesus proclaims the love of God to all and lives that love by healing the affirmed and liberating those held captive by evil, they're simply bearing witness. In this encounter between Jesus and Simon's mother-in-law, what the saints, the church, are doing is bearing witness to something truly amazing. She's coming to faith, coming to know Jesus, literally serving her son, his brother, and their friend, Jesus, her savior. All the ways that we say and pray, Jesus, I want to serve you. It's like 60% of all the children's sermons and you know, half the gospel songs ever written, right? Jesus, I want to serve you. She's literally doing it. And she's coming to know Jesus through that serving. She's becoming a disciple of Jesus through that service of Jesus and Jesus' mission in the world. But can it really be that simple, church? Can our neighbors come to Christ and believe in Christ and becomes Christ's bodies by simply serving one another, us included? Isn't this an oversimplification of the moment of salvation? What about faith? What about confession? What about learning the Bible? What about living justice? What about becoming people of peace? Yes, all of these, yes. 
They're all vital to sustaining the Christian life. But I contend that in some ways we learn faith, contrition, living justice, living love. Within the communion of saints, the church local, the church assembled, e.g. the synagogue, we learn to be that church local by being church and doing church together. By doing church local, we are teaching one another to become the church universal, the body of Christ. By serving and bearing witness to the loving service of others, and in all time, all around us, God's children are coming to Christ, finding the healing, the liberation they need, finding the strength to serve their neighbors. And in doing so, they're coming to recognize God's love. Paul Tillich once wrote that we come to love God and recognize God by recognizing the other, our neighbor, and loving them. It's the only way it works. For, for Tillich, loving the neighbor is loving God and learning to love God, thus growing in our capacity to receive love and give love truly to both God and neighbor, all by loving what God loves, our community around us. Church, we see our neighbors show love for each other and us similarly, routinely, regularly, sometimes from those that we least expect to be loving. What if our part to play, what if our